Hello and welcome to Biography Central, the podcast where we delve into the lives of some of the fascinating people in our special collection of biographies at Kensington Central Library in London. This is a unique collection of about 90,000 volumes of biography, autobiography, journals, memoirs, letters and other biographical books dating from the early 19th century right up to the present day. We actually also even have a few books from earlier than that, from the 18th and even a couple of the 17th centuries. So in every episode, we'll be cracking open a biography from the collection and discussing the person we've met in its pages. We're not aiming to recount the person's entire story, uh, but what we want to do is have a general discussion about a remarkable person and what we've learned about them and what we've learned about their time and place, their impact on the world, and what we've perhaps been left wondering I'm Claudia Jessop, I'm a library officer at Kensington Central Library and I'm here with my colleague Jackie Hastick who is our Byborough Children's Officer for Strategy and Innovation. Hello. And we are going to talk for Black History Month, which is this month, about a remarkable person called Una Marson. So the book we're looking at is called the Life of Una Marson, 1905 to 65, by Delia Jarrett Macaulay. That was published in 1998 by Manchester University Press and I think um, reissued uh, about 10 years later as well. Um, and just a really quick kind of way of introducing Una Marsden is to say she is one of those people whose biography is, is littered with the word first. She was the first woman to ever edit and publish a newspaper in Jamaica. She was the first uh, black woman to be employed as a producer by the BBC. She was the first black woman to attend an international women's conference. She started the first ever interracial club in Jamaica, which was called the Readers and Writers Club. She was the first black woman to put on a production in London's West End um, of a play, uh, which was also itself the first all black production to be put on in a West End theatre. Um, so she was a poet, a playwright, a journalist, a broadcaster, an activist, and somebody who, uh, I, there's a particular thing I really like about the collection is that amongst all the books about, you know, very, very, very famous names from world history, we can find people like this who have been unjustly forgotten uh, to a large extent, not remembered as much as they should have been. And we can take these books and find out about these fascinating lives. So, Jackie, would you like to start us off by telling us a bit about Una Marson's upbringing in Jamaica? Sure. Um, Una was born in Jamaica. Uh, she in Sharon Village in St Elizabeth. Uh, she was the last of six natural-born children, um, and she also had three adopted siblings. Also, um, her parents were Reverend Reverend si Solomon Isaac, um, and her mum was Ada. She had. She lived in a what we would consider or what was considered then a fairly middle class family. Mm -hmm. um, so she wasn't 
you know, in comparison to a lot of others in Jamaica, she had a fairly prosperous life um, in the respect that her parents were very keen on education. Um, she was she was basically exposed to a lot of things that normally wouldn't be accessible. Um, and they were very interested in literature and mm -hmm. literature um, and art and poetry. Um, her, she was particularly interested in poetry and she was introduced to it by her two elder sisters, um, Ethel and Edith. Mm -hmm. And she, according to her biography, this was something that she gave her great happiness, you know, to be involved in. Um, in 1915, she entered uh, a school, a high school, a high school, which was boarding, which she boarded also. And um, it was quite a prestigious school and it was called Hampton High. And she was one of the few black Jamaicans that actually were in attendance to that school. Mm -hmm. um, people generally sent their children there so they could receive, um, you know, public school, English public school education. And um, most of the families there, as you could imagine, were wealthy and, you know, non-black, well, 100% black. Um, she, also, she got in via scholarship. Um, as you can imagine, she, you know, she experienced quite a lot of racism due to her complexion. Mm -hmm. um, this was something that she had got used to um, in childhood also, and this was coming from her family, as she was of a darker skin color than her siblings. Right. Um, you know, what we formerly, what we know now as colorism was very rife. And um, yeah, she was a victim of that. So, you know, in order to protect herself from that, I think she became very uh, strong. Yeah. <laughs> She became very strong because she knew these, you know, this kind of um, attitude, she definitely was always definitely coming her way. Um, she did, however, you know, receive a great, you know, education while she was there. And it, and it basically played to her strengths, i.e. in literature and poetry. So even though there were the negatives, I think she took from it quite a few positives yeah. because it did open up her, um, you know, it opened up avenues where I don't think she would have, she may not have, e you know, easily been exposed to. So, um, I mean, overall, her upbringing was, I think it was fairly loving. I, you know, again, I think she was closer to her father mm. than her mother. Um, and, you know, but this bore, you know, it bore testament to her strength as, you know, as we go on into adulthood. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, that was her beginning. That was, you know, the beginning of her life and, you know, up until teens. Yes. Yeah. Up until definitely. her teens. I mean, I think that that very much comes across that she, that, you know, academically the school was great, but mm. socially it was incredibly difficult. And, but as you say, that that seems to have made her kind of at quite an early age decide that she, because she wasn't going to conform to what was considered to be desirable, she was going to 
be a very independent. In 1922, she left school and she became a stenographer, which that's a word I've heard so many times over the years, but I've never actually looked it up to see what it actually meant, but it's kind of an early form of shorthand and typing, um, which she did. She worked for the Salvation Army and she worked for YMCA. And she was also, she did social work in a volunteer capacity. She was always very, very interested in doing hands-on work with people. Um, and then in 1926, she had her first uh, proper job as a journalist. She became assistant editor of the Jamaica Critic, which was a newspaper. So at only 21 years old um, and as a woman, that was that was pretty impressive. And then two years later, she um, that she became the first woman to edit and publish her own uh, newspaper in Jamaica which I mentioned before, which was called The Cosmopolitan, no relation to the famous magazine Cosmopolitan. Mm. She started that up herself and she ran it for some time. Um, and in 1930, published her first poetry collection, um, Tropic Reveries. Um, and then after about a year or so, The Cosmopolitan sadly uh, closed down because of, of lack of money. Um, and she published a second poetry collection. And she wrote her first play at Water Price, it was called. So this is all by the age of 26. I mean, <laughs> that's a fairly uh, full collection of things to have already achieved mm -hmm. at that age. Now, in 1932, something very major happens in her life, which is that she moves to London. Can you tell us a bit about that, Jackie? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, she <laughs> moved to Peckham um in london where there was um a, i think a fairly large west indian community predominantly jamaican and that's still very much um you know apparent now she bought it with a house of uh, another jamaican born gentleman it's dr harold moody who founded the league of colored peoples in 1931 um you know, obviously coming from the Caribbean, she struggled at first living in London because it was so different from what she was used to. And, um, you know, she struggled to find her place. She struggled, I think, dealing with the environment that she was now in, really, where she was the minority. So, um, yeah, there were adjustments in life that she had to make that were, um, I think pretty difficult. Um, she, her first impressions were gauged by a poem she wrote. Um, <laughs> the title is a bit, you know, it, the title is a little bit um, incendiary. Um, and, but it basically um, details how she was made to feel, how she felt, how she felt how she was made to feel. Um, so it it basically reflected the environment that she was now in. In the League of Colored Peoples, their commitment was to um, address the issues of racial division. And I think that uh, Una found comfort in that, that there was a sense of, uh, not belonging is not the word. It, it was basically, it was, I mean, it was a shared, it was basically 
a shared experience. So she wasn't the only one feeling the way that she did. Um, so, you know, she, she was trying to find work, you know, and she tried for about a year to find some work, which is very difficult. And, you know, at the end, she basically became an unpaid secretary from the, uh, the League of Coloured Peoples. So she was organizing, you know, doing a lot of the admin and organizing receptions and meetings and trips. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, she was actually meeting people from African, Afro-Caribbean background um, when they were visiting Britain. Uh, she, in 1933, she accompanied Mr. Dr. Moody to the World, Wilberforce Cent Centenary Celebrations in Harlem, the invitation of the mayor. Um, you know, and other league members. And she, you know, she, through that time, they celebrated or remembered the, you know, the death of William Wimbleforce, who was a key, you know, player in the abolition of slavery within the British Empire. Um, so I think that Una basically became involved, probably by luck, because of where she happened to be housed um, into this, I don't know, this committee, which I think she felt at that time fully um, understood, you know, the plight of Caribbean people coming to London, coming to England for the first time and having to adapt to a life in a place that was so foreign. She was treated as a foreigner. Um, and the difficulties in her actually trying to live and exist within this mindset of people who, as far as she's known, she didn't do anything for. And remember that, you know, that in the Caribbean, they were always told they were part of the British Empire, you know. And so I'm sure people thought that once they come over, they would be um, welcomed as somebody, as an extension of, you know, of Britain and you know she found out that was really not the case mm -hmm. so um through you know through this introduction um with Dr Moody I think it was a it was a voyage of discovery for her and a way of her basically getting through wading through something that was you know of great difficulty mm -hmm. for her so I mean that was mm -hmm right up until yeah 1933 um she also um put on a performance of of water price mm -hmm. um and which began a three-night run at the scala theater as the first black colonial production in the west end yeah i mean yes she was she was absolutely going into every possible arena um, that where her talents could help to not only express her own artistic vision, but also help the communities that she was part of. Mm -hmm. And um, and Jackie, the, it's interesting, isn't it? She made some choices at that time about how she presented herself in her appearance. Could you talk us a bit about that? Because I thought that was very interesting, especially <laughs> given we're talking about the early 1930s. Yeah, um, I think as well as this, I think she tries to find she she found her own identity, and as 
um, Claudia said she was a bit of a nonconformist. I mean, at that time, um, black people coming to London, I mean, in the Caribbean to a point as well, you know, they tried to take on an appearance that was more acceptable. Um, that would also include straightening their hair, the way they dress, they dressed in a more westernized way. Um, you know, and she pushed against that because I'm guessing she's thinking looking that way was not helping her. It was not making her way any easier. She was still struggling. So she decided to go right back to her roots and, you know, and, you know, forego the straightening of her hair, um, the clothes that she wore and took on a more naturally black appearance i.e. her hair was in its natural state. Um, she dressed in clothes that were more reflective of her African heritage as well, um, because that's where she, I think she just thought, well, you know, I'm being classified, I'm being, you know, irrespective of how I was looking, this is, they're not seeing past the colour of my skin. So, you know, I, if, you know, I am black, so I'm going to look as a black person would so um yeah and she yeah. did and it's part of her feminism as well it, it was that that non-conforming of you know of you know i think it was a way that you looked more attractive as well in most people's eyesight side sight you know if you did you know basically follow i don't know the unwritten laws and rules that you your hair does not take on its natural appearance but how it naturally is and you don't dress the way that you would naturally dress so um i think she forgot and that was her feminine femininity as well as her um black heritage coming into play so you know that was a telling part of her you know her literally pushing back on what were were the natural the norms of atypical black people at that time. So, because it yeah, I I thought that showed how very very courageous she was as well. Because obviously, I think we we've discussed this before, and you know, even in the nineteen sixties, people wearing their hair in natural mm -hmm. ways was was you know was still a, a, a thing that attracted comment or was uh, a certain interpreted as a statement um, that some people were uncomfortable with. Or, mm -hmm. or, and this, we're talking about her doing this in the early 1930s, where walking around London as a black woman was already very difficult, as she described in, in her, in some of her poetry and her, and so to be wearing, she wore traditional African fabrics and, and you know, she, I'm sure attracted a lot of, of a lot of notice in the streets um and it was part of obviously as you say her her discovering her African heritage and her interest in in African culture and traditions and at this around this time she met someone who was very important for her um because Dr. Moody seems to, he seems to have attracted lots of people who were traveling through London mm -hmm. from the Caribbean and from Africa. His house in Peckham was a kind of meeting point that lots of people passed through. Mm -hmm. And one of the people who visited him was King Sanana Afori Atta Omanhini. And I apologize if I haven't pronounced that completely correctly, but he was a king from the ancient kingdom of Akyem Abuakwa which is part of present day Ghana. Um, 
And he was a man with whom Una Marsden obviously had a very close bond. I mean, there's a little speculation in the biography that perhaps it, it, it went further than just friendship, but um, there's no actual proof of that. Um, but they corresponded for many years after he returned to Africa. And he was somebody, I think, who, who really opened up uh, the, the, the history of Africa to her, the culture of different African um, nations and, and made her feel a connection and made her and gave her, I think it, the impression I get is it, it kind of gave her the confidence to, mm -hmm. to forge those bonds mm -hmm. with obviously this, this very interesting man. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I mean, it could be also, it's also to be noted that she, I mean, like I touched on with the, you know, the feminism and I mean, um, she did become you know, affiliated with a lot of women's um, organisations and um, to the point where she was in 1935, she was the first Jamaican invited to speak at the International Alliance of Women for Suffrage and Equal Citizenship, um, you know, in, in Istanbul. And in the same year, she became the first black woman invited uh, to the League of Nations in Geneva by the Abyssinian Emperor Haile Selassie. Yeah, would you like to Which went on, junkie? which, yeah. you know, mm. um, she went on to have a, a, a closer relationship with. Um, you know, she, she went back um, to Jamaica in 1937. And uh, she set about, you know, um, forming the first interracial club in Jamaica, uh, the Readers and Writers Club. Uh, she basically, she's at that point, she then um, released her third collection of poems, The Moth and the Star. And this collection, um, they've noticed, was overtly racial. Um, in the way they put it put forward a really positive self image for black women and pushed back on what they saw as the not so positive force of whiteness um she you know the titles of her poems left no doubt in what she was aiming for um kinky hair blues she continued on that you know, on that pathway where she she basically was challenging the the idea, you know, the you know, she's challenging the idea of a of you know the white um influence, mm -hmm. you know, basically over the Caribbean islands, over, over black people. And you know, she was literally she you could see that she was intent on reclaiming her African heritage at this point. Um, this is when she said she also got into social work mm -hmm. and and set it up and set up the Jamaica Save the Children Association, Jam Save. Um, she came back to London and um, you know mainly to raise funds 
and you know she um basically this is when she got involved with the bbc yeah. it's also said while she was in jamaica rolling back she she became the um secretary at the league of nations in geneva and for Haile Selassie. So again, it was embedding that desire to, um, that desire to reclaim that African heritage, because I think that was in her mind, that was something that was basically untouched. Um, I think at, at that point, I think Abyssinia was one of the places that had not been colonized mm. either. Mm. It was one of the few places, I think it was the only place mm. in Africa that I hadn't been colonized. Yeah. 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 So so literally her, um, I would say the fascination with Haile Selassie was born of that, that it was something that some, a, a place that was, a, that had maintained its um, authentic, authenticity, Mm-hmm. It can maintain its ethos of the fact that they had they were black people in a black land that hadn't that hadn't had to be um, diluted in any way. It, it had remained untouched. So you know, I think it was all part of her search for who she was and trying to give meaning to her life. Hence, why she was jumping, and you could tell by her works that this realization was coming around, was coming, it was coming through stronger for her. Yeah, and I think Haile Selassie um, at that point, because um, uh, Italy under Mussolini was was uh, invading um, Abyssinia, mm-hmm. uh, which is which is what we now know as Ethiopia, and mm-hmm. Haile Selassie came out onto the world stage to kind of plead for for his country and his people, and he was a, he was a, a figure that captured a lot of people's imagination Mm -hmm. um and obviously hers too and she it's just it really strikes me as we're talking about this the way that she i mean to say she had fingers in lots of pies that almost that that sound that's not the right phrase because that sounds kind of that kind of belittles it but she was in all kinds of really critical points and critical moments she was there and she was kind of balancing her her artistic work, which was prolific, with her political work and her social work, as you say, about Jam Save, she then was very involved in that and did, did huge amounts of work for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and around this period as well of the late 30s, she she wrote her play Pokemania, which is very interesting because it's it's um it's about traditional um religious would you say cult? I don't know, of Pokemania in Jamaica, mm-hmm. um, which seemingly derived from West African traditions and 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 there was a tension between that and the kind of Christian conventional church. And her father was a Baptist minister and she was brought up very much in, in a very um, conventional, conservative Christian background. So the fact that she chose to write a play, write a play, which I think is about the tension of um, a Christian character discovering this traditional um, form of spirituality. Mm-hmm. That's again very much, I think, reflects the kinds of issues that she was interested in exploring 
um, yeah, um, in her book, she, you know, in a book she had told a West African journalist, Victor Delumo, in an interview seven years later, um, that Pokemonia is the nearest thing to Africa that we have in the West Indies, adding that our, our African ancestry is still with us. So, which kind of like, you know, embeds why she was doing this, because like I feel is that she was searching for a place where she could be, you know, for the one of saying black and proud, mm. you know, and that had, and that it, it had not been, it was not in, at all diluted. It's something she could take pride in um, because we all know the, the past of the Caribbean and how people got to be there. Um, so, uh, you know, and Caribbean is pretty diluted because there is a, a lot of mixture there. So, you know, if you are, you know, with her, I think it's all different, you know, different reasons why she would do that, why she felt she she was looking for a place to belong, mm -hmm. you know, and, and where, like I said, she feels comfortable in a place where she belongs and where colorism doesn't exist, you know, and, you know, and this, and, you know, and she's not pushing back and having to defend herself, because I think a lot of this is all about justifying it's it's um yeah it's justifying her existence literally I you know I believe you know when you look at what she did with writing with activism with I think that all that's what I'm getting from this yeah that's what I'm taking from this yeah absolutely and um and then in 1942 the thing that she is most remembered for now, when she's remembered, which she should be much more, um, happened, which was that she became the first black woman to be employed as a producer by the BBC. So 1942, the Second World War obviously went underway, um, and she began on the Empire Services programme calling the West Indies, and the Empire Service was the old name for the BBC World Service, which broadcast around the world. But They'd always, it seemed the the, the Caribbean service, or the, the West Indian service as it was called, was um, not very, you know, it was rather neglected. It wasn't very um, uh, thriving. Um, but she took over that programme and she developed it into a programme called Caribbean Voices. Um, and I just want to read a, a quote from a historian called Edmund Braithwaite, and he called Caribbean Voices the single most important literary catalyst for Caribbean creative and critical writing in English. So it was a, a, a massive thing. I mean, she worked early on um, with some really big names like George Orwell, um, for example. And um, but she really took over this program, which it, it started out, I think, as as a program for West Indian service personnel to give messages to their families at home. Um, and she changed it into something really, uh, really important, which was about broadcasting the work of writers from the Caribbean and British writers with Caribbean roots. Um, so, yeah, and I think it's 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 really a great 
thing to regret that she, even though the program is really is remembered, I think mm -hmm. her contribution to it isn't so much. I think there was a subsequent producer um, who uh, Henry Swansea, I think he was called. Who you know, I'm sure he was. <laughs> I'm sure this was nothing to detract from him, but he tends to be remembered as being the person who um, who broadcast the work of people like. Um, uh, Sam Salvon and George Lamming and Andrew Sulky, I think V.S. Naipaul and people, very important Caribbean writers. Um, so when, even when the story of this programme is told, Una Marson is kind of a bit on the margins of that, which seems just, yeah, really, really bad, given that she she took this sort of quite fringe programme of mainly just messages to people's relatives and she transformed it into a really important artistic um, programme. So, yeah. Um, and then the late 1940s was a, was a difficult period for her, wasn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, she... She published her fourth and final poetry collection, which was called Towards the Stars in 1945. And then in 1946, she became very ill mentally um, and she'd returned to Jamaica. And really for the next couple of years, her mental health um, completely broke down and she was in a psychiatric hospital in Jamaica. Um, then in the early 50s, she moved to Washington, didn't she, Jackie? And it's kind of slightly strange, I feel. I don't know about yeah. you, but I feel there's a slightly strange interlude at this point. What would, Can you tell us what happened and what... what, what yeah, it, yeah, it appears that um, that when she moved to, when she went to Washington, uh, I think after her bout of depression and... I think she was looking and, and they, you know, it's noted that they felt that the depression was um, was caused or I think it was, it could have been caused by the fact that she was pretty solitary where she was in England with no family, no friends, no net, no, no close network, um, you know, and that loneliness, because if you can imagine she was getting a lot while she was in the BBC, she was still experiencing a lot of um, discrimination, you know, and for a person to have to experience this amount of um, hostility and not to have anybody to, to support, then, you know, it becomes a, it can become, it can basically, you know, show in, you know, a mental breakdown. It can result in a, in a mental breakdown, which is what happened to Una, unfortunately, sadly. So um, when she went to Washington, for somebody that had lived a pretty solitary life and did not seem to be fitting in with the norms of society in that case, she met someone and got married. Um, admittedly, um, it was Peter Staples, um, I can't remember. He was, he was a, a dentist. dentist. He was an yeah, American American, yeah, dentist. Um, um, the relationship did not last long. No, I uh, think it was about a year. They yeah. divorced. Um, I think it was. I think it, it also. It all. It almost seems that it was something that she tried. She tried to form, have a, 
a relationship, form a normal relationship, or have a normal, a normal life. Um, but, you know, it didn't work out for her, sadly. And that resulted in another breakdown yeah. and, and depression, uh, which is just, you know, really sad. Yeah. yeah. It's just really sad considering everything that she was mm. that she had done that she was doing mm. um and I think it was the strain of literally taking what is you know in the most difficult period mm. and having to deal with it by herself you know really so yeah yeah, yeah. and and she had been very solitary hadn't she she hadn't had very successful relationships I mean it seems it's described in the book that she she obviously fell very deeply in love particularly on two occasions that we know of mm-hmm. um one was a Czech Jewish young refugee that she met in London one was a um West Indian RAF man during the war both of them were quite a bit younger than her and she things didn't work out and obviously with the with the RAF man she was heartbroken because he then married somebody else and she so so she hadn't had a very happy um partnership with anyone um and then it's almost yeah it just felt a bit strange that she married this man that she hadn't known very long yeah um I think he was a widower with with children who'd already grown up and and it and then she started around that time to say some some strange things for her to, you know, kind of incongruous things that she started to say about, you know, how women should have traditional roles or, you know, having been this pioneering feminist all her life, it was almost as though she, she, she suddenly felt she needed to try, as you say, that that conventional line, fit in, tick the boxes and do, but, but sadly, um, it didn't, well, and probably, you know, inevitably, because that wasn't really who she was, um, it led to her having um, a, a divorce and, a, and another breakdown, sadly. Um, and then moving into the early 60s, she obviously in 1962, Jamaica gained its independence. Mm-hmm. Um, and around that time, she returned to Jamaica and she, she formed um, a publishing company called Pioneer Press. And then she became very active in campaigning on behalf of the Rastafarian community in Jamaica. Um, so, yeah, can you tell us about Again, I think she was, um, especially for peoples that, that she felt were, um, I'm gonna say hard done by, overlooked, forgotten, um, Rastafarian community, in Jamaica at that time was very, uh, kept very separate from, um, you know, the regular, you know, peoples, you know, of their their land. Um, Their way of thinking, the fact that they wore locks on their hair, the fact that they, you know, they had locks, they led a a, a pretty, like it was a vegan existence. they left, they lived off the land, um, very quietly spoken, people, peaceful. Um, and I imagine that their lifestyle did not fit in with a lot of people's thinking at that time. And um, 
where they lived was fairly broken down. They lived in shacks. They lived in broken down. They, they, you know, their living conditions were not great at all. Um, and Una took um, issue to this and wanted to be not not necessarily, but she wanted to bring light upon their what she thought as their plight, basically, that they were, you know, black people, you know, just because they they lived by a a different set of rules, um, that they shouldn't be, you know, isolated from everywhere else. So uh, she, I think she took on board helping them. Yeah. You know, it was helping them bringing, you know, bringing their um, lifestyle more to light. And, and at this point as well, if you have any knowledge of the Rastafarian religion, is that they have very close ties to Abyssinia, Ethiopia mm. at that point, because they um, looked upon as Haile Selassie as their king. And they followed the Amharic Bible. That's what they used also. So it was a form of Christianity to yeah it was a form of christianity so um you know but i think it was purely by i think it was the fact that they were being um discriminated against by their yeah mm -hmm. they were being discriminated purely by their appearance you know and just the way they looked and it did not fit in with, with what people looked upon as as being acceptable so yeah she she basically gave and she and she just felt the unfairness of it so yeah. she wanted to get involved um she, she she wanted to get involved with them so yeah i think she took on their cause yeah and and she because i hadn't known i hadn't realized how they were how much persecution really they they experienced i mean it describes you know the police burning down yeah their places where they lived and things and um so yes she i think she she identified with people who who chose to live a more unconventional life, yeah. didn't she? Yeah. And uh, basically on the fringes of society, yes. I guess. I yes. guess I guess that's what she she was basically looking at people who, but as far as she was concerned, these were black people. Exactly, exactly. And she created um a children's centre for Rastafarian yes. children, didn't she? Which yes. which and she raised all the money uh for that and they have this this wonderful center. Um so as well as this is what fascinates me about her, one of the many things, but she, as well as being such a, a talented writer and such a, a brilliant um, broadcaster, and she was also su such a hands-on person at being able to do really practical things like raise funds, you know, which a lot of people are, you know, have all sorts of ideas, but they're not so good at the actual getting things to materialise. And she, she was absolutely. Um, very, very good at that as well. So then, 1965, um, she was invited to go to Israel to the conference on the role of women in the struggle for peace and development. And sadly, while she was uh, attending that conference, she became ill and she was flown back urgently to Jamaica where she died um, on the 6th of May. So she was only 60 years old. Um, and she was buried at St Andrew's Church in Kingston. Um, so, Jackie, what would you say were the, your sort of kind of final thoughts after reading this book about Una Marsden? What, what, were there any questions that it left you wondering about? Were there any particular things that you, that you thought 
about her? What struck me when I was reading this book, because I will confess I'd never heard of Una Marston um, prior to doing, you know, this fire epic, um, which says a lot. And um, I, what I thought at first was the parallels between her and Claudia Jones. Right. There were a lot of parallels in the way that they lived their lives. And it seemed to me that to be a woman, um, to be a black woman, and to live a life of, I would basically say, humanitarian is, it's at a cost. It's really at a cost because um, for all the great things that she did for others, I, I didn't, I couldn't fully understand what it did for her. It, I think she was just so busy and it sounds... I mean, I'm I'm guessing that she would have got a lot of um, pride, and you know, um, she would have felt she was doing good, and which she was. I mean, like Claudia said, she was the first of so many things, mm -hmm. you know, in first so many things that would have been basically unreachable for most people of color. Never mind a woman. Mm -hmm. And the fact that she did that, but it was, it just seemed that her life was still sad. Yes, I, I you know, it, it came at, you know, a price of like personal happiness. Yes. You know, and again, she died at a fairly young age. And um, again, like I said, the parallels between her and Claudia Jones. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it, that's what struck me. I, I can take you know, I, I can take pride as a black woman of all the things that she accomplished. But the overriding thing for me as well is, it, like I said, is the price she paid personally for that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, you know, that's, that's, you know, and I believe she's somebody who should be, is very unrecognised and um, her name should be spoken in the same breath as Claudia Jones, who again, you know, is only come becoming more popular. She's, you know, at the, you know, a tip of people's tongue, like lips now, but um, it took a while to get there. And I think Una Marson um, deserves yeah. Th yeah. that same degree of recognition. Definitely. Because she pushed forward, she opened a lot of doors for people from the Caribbean, um, not only Jamaica, but people that were in London and had come over here and were trying to find a place and their space in a foreign land. Um, and, you know, she did, she did do that as well as helping peoples abroad mm -hmm. um, and bringing forth the, the connection that we do have with Africa. You know, and um, there's a lot of great things that she accomplished in her life. I just wish that she had more personal happiness as well from that. Yes, I, within I, that. I feel exactly the same. And I think because when we did, I think our first ever episode, didn't we? Two years mm. ago, we did Claudia Jones, who yeah. started the Nottingham Hill Carnival, amongst many other things. And yes, uh, that the, the price and the um, Una Marson wrote a play, didn't she, called 
you mentioned it earlier, it's called an at water price. Yeah. Which kind of is very um, apt because uh, she paid, a, she did pay a very big price yeah. for all of the the work that she did. That kind of, again, with Claudia Jones, that, that sort of all-consuming work mm -hmm. where you just never kind of, never stop really doing the things that, that you think are really, really important. Mm -hmm. So... So, well, thank you very much, Jackie, for discussing Una Mars. And I think she was um, an absolutely amazing woman. And I'm really glad that, that we came upon this book, um, <laughs> which I'm just going to say a really quick word about the, the author of this book, because we always we, we sometimes forget to mm. mention. So it's Delia Jarrett McCauley, and um, she is um, a... She's from Sierra Leonean uh, heritage, and she's a novelist, biographer, academic, and broadcaster herself. And she was another first, because she was the first Black Women's Studies course um, uh, at uh, MA at the University of Kent was, was her course that she, mm -hmm. that she taught and devised, and yeah. So thank you for listening, everybody. And uh, you can hear our previous episodes, which, which were called Bioepic, um, before we became Biography Central, including the one on Claudia Jones. They're all available. Um, and if you go to our website, www.rbkc.gov.uk slash libraries, you can find out how to join our libraries. You don't have to live in the Royal Borough of Kensington, Chelsea. Um, and you can look at the catalogue and browse all of the 90,000 books that are in our Biography Store collection, as well as all of our other books. Um, and if you are already a member, then all the better. You can, you can start browsing straight away. OK, so thank you very much. And we hope you'll join us for our next episode. Bye bye. Okay, thank you. Bye bye. Thank you.